We have our book evening, uh, book evening this weekend. Now, our book, our book sermon this weekend, um, stepping into our new study in the epistle of Galatians. I remind you that on the back table there are outlines. Uh, I have successfully thus far been able to do this with every new book that I've preached. I have had an outline of the book. And if you are interested in having one of those outlines as we walk through the book, by all means, please do take one. There are plenty on the back table. I printed off too many. So there's a good stack there. The purpose of today's sermon, as with all of our book sermons, is to provide an overview of the message in the context of the Epistle of Galatians. Uh, We do this because most books of the Bible, with some notable exceptions, are compiled with the intent of presenting many individual thoughts or many individual narratives within the scope of an overall thought or narrative. In other words, while um, there are, it's, it's, it's certainly true that as we look at the, the books of the Bible, um, there are many individual lessons to be learned, uh, whether Old Testament or New Testament. It's also true that the book as a whole has a message. It has an intent. It has a, a, a thrust. Um, even, even a book like Proverbs, where um, it's, it's very... Um, each individual proverb is really a, a unit in and of itself. There is a whole thrust to the book, is there not? Which is wisdom. Even a book like Psalms. Uh, a Psalms is a compilation. And even in, in the Psalms, which uh, each individual Psalm, or the majority of those Psalms, are not explicitly related one to another. Uh, you, you could stop reading at the end of one psalm and, and uh, have a complete thought, yet as a whole, the, the thrust of psalms is, is it, was a, it was a hymnal. It was a hymnal for the Hebrews. And so there, there is a reason, there, there's a reason why it's put together. And particularly in the New Testament, and specifically the epistles, we see this concept heightened to a great degree where um, Paul or, or Peter or whoever's writing the, the particular epistle has a purpose in writing and there is a general theme that the book focuses upon. As we do these book sermons, it does greatly benefit our study if we're successful in maintaining that broad perspective, that broad overall purpose of the book, the broad overall intent as we interpret the nuances of this book. And we uh, came to this conclusion very strongly, say, in 1 John. When you think of our study in 1 John, 1 John has a particular audience that it's written to, believers, and a particular reason. These things write I unto you that your joy may be full. And so we, when we know the purpose of the book and we read verses that would tempt us to think John saying we can lose our salvation or that you're not saved if you sin, we immediately step back and say, no, wait, what is the purpose that John is, is employing or what, what purpose did he write, for what purpose did he write this epistle? And when we understand the purpose, then we can better understand the nuances of his message. So, uh, um, as we consider this, 
as it happens in every book, whether Old Testament or New Testament, uh, the various aspects of proper interpretation can only be formed by maintaining this broad perspective, the overarching message and purpose of the book. And that's why we do book sermons, so that we can perhaps guard ourselves at least a little bit from losing the forest for the trees. Uh, you understand that expression? We're so busy looking at all the trees that we say, where's the forest? All I see here is trees, right? Um, we're so busy looking at each individual tree or, or the individual components of a forest that we, we forget that we're in a forest. Uh, lest we get so busy looking at the individual components of a book, we do a book sermon to give us a broad perspective on the overall thrust. Now, the book of Galatians is an epistle of deep correction, one which focuses upon an entire region of churches, a region called Galatia. And this, this region had yielded the distinctives of the gospel of Jesus Christ and were living under what, what Paul terms the bondage of the law, of false legalistic expectations attached to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul's purpose in writing this letter is to correct the thinking of these churches by denouncing this false theology, this bad doctrine. He's speaking against false doctrine and he's appealing to the original understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ as the place for the Galatians to get back to. The book of Galatians has often been called the Magna Carta of Christian liberty. You're all about to get back into school, and one of these days in history, if you haven't learned about it already, you'll probably learn about the Magna Carta, one of the most influential legal documents in Western history. And that is used to describe Galatians and the magnitude of the book of Galatians upon Christian thought. Christian thought, particularly Reformation thought, has been deeply influenced by the book of Galatians. It was, um, it was, it was Martin Luther's favorite book. He loved the book of Galatians because it is all about by grace through faith plus no works. And it was that, that big thrust that made him love the book of Galatians so deeply. And this is a very, very personal book for Paul. In fact, it's one of only two epistles which the Bible explicitly tells us Paul wrote the entire letter with his own hand. And the only other one that he did that with uh, that is explicitly stated is Philemon, which was another deeply personal letter. All the rest of them, as far as we know, he used an amanuensis, uh, someone who, who, who did the writing and he dictated it. So it shows just how personal this letter was to him. Now, the nuances of this epistle are amazing. In the epistle of Galatians, Paul defends his apostolic authority. He establishes the transcendence of the biblical doctrine of justification by faith alone. He denounces legalistic thought and action. And rarely mentioned in connection with this book, he also demonstrates how this false legalistic theology was not simply a different perspective on how to please God, but it was also a method of ministry that was taught by false teachers for a particular purpose. And that particular purpose, and we'll see this when we get to chapter 6, was to avoid the persecution that comes with being a follower of Jesus Christ. That if they could just change the gospel a little bit, then they'd not be persecuted by 
particularly the Jews. And Paul makes it very clear toward the end of the book that that is a, a deep part of the reasoning as to why these false teachers are teaching a legalistic gospel. Now, the book of Galatians was written by Paul, as we mentioned, to the churches of Galatia. It's clear from the text that Paul is writing here to an entire region of churches, not simply one church, and he's addressing some problem that he perceives to have affected all of the congregations. In chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, the scriptures say, Paul, an apostle, not of men, neither by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren which are with me unto the churches, plural, of Galatia. Now, while we can all agree that he's writing to the churches of Galatia, scholars are not fully agreed upon as to which churches these were. Uh, there is some controversy in theological circles concerning where geographically these churches were located, with the debate as to whether or not Paul was writing to what we would call the northern kingdom of Galatia, which is that area in dark green there, uh, the capital being Ancyra there, or whether he was writing to the southern um, area of Galatia, which had been completely assimilated by the Roman Empire. So uh, that northern kingdom of Galatia was, uh, you, we might say, under the close eye of the Roman Empire, but was allowed to function as a, an autonomous kingdom in and of itself. The Roman Empire did not impose their laws and their will upon that kingdom. And the southern area of Galatia is an area where um, they were fully assimilated into the Roman Empire, and particularly because there were important roads that went through that area of Galatia. And so Rome wanted complete control in order that they could maintain their infrastructure as to um, travel and getting from particularly Syria and Palestine up to Asia, Greece, and then eventually to Rome. Now, as the debate rages on, many will say, well, it does say that Paul went up. We know that Paul went up during his second missionary journey into Bithynia and Pontus, and, uh, and there's speculation that maybe he went up into the nor northern area of Galatia at that time. We do see in the book of Acts, uh, it says that, that Paul ministered throughout all of Galatia, and so many will say, well, all of Galatia definitely goes up north. And so it seems likely that he went up north and, and because he says these are the churches of Galatia and Galatia proper is that northern kingdom, it makes sense. However, as we look at the book, as we look at what Paul is saying here, and as we look at the particulars of history, it makes more sense to me to believe that he was writing to the southern churches in Galatia, the churches that we are familiar with from Paul's missionary journeys there, and you can see them on the screen, Pisidian Antioch, Lystra, Iconium, and Derby. And it seems more likely, uh, just as far as the whole biblical account, uh, let me put it this way. Not necessarily it seems more likely, let me, let me put it this way. It's consistent with everything we know of this region for him to be writing to Pisidian, Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derby, And we'll see why in just a moment. So I do think that Paul is writing to the southern region of Galatia. And let me tell you why now. In, uh, the region of Galatia was one of Paul's destinations on all three of his missionary journeys. You just saw that. That if you trace the purple line, the red line, and the blue line, you see that all three of them go through Pisidian Antioch, 
Iconium, Lystra, and Derby. And so he was there several times in his missionary journeys. In fact, he went twice during the first missionary journey. So he was in each of those cities at least four times. These would have been cities that were near and dear to his heart because of the regularity with which he visited them. His primary destination, however, were, uh, the, the only time that these cities were his primary destination was on his first missionary journey. There, the scriptures tell us, uh, Paul and Barnabas entered Galatia in Acts chapter 13, verse 14, and there they arrive in Antioch, in Pisidian Antioch, or Antioch of Pisidia, on the northwest side of the southern tip of Galatia. You got all those, those uh, um, directions there. So they started in Pisidian Antioch and, Antioch, and the scriptures tell us that there they came against heavy, heavy Jewish resistance to their message and were eventually cast out of the region, moving on to the city of Iconium in the heart of the southern area of Galatia. So they were cast out of Antioch and Pisidia. And you say, Pastor, why are you calling it that? Well, the scriptures call it Antioch and Pisidia, but that's because if you look over here, on the, the very right side in Syria, you see another city called Antioch. That's Antioch in Syria, and that was actually, if we could call it this, Paul and Barnabas' home church. They were called Christians first at Antioch, the scriptures tell us. And that was the Antioch in Syria. And that's the Antioch that the Jews would be more familiar with. That was the Antioch that was more common. So when they want to talk about the Antioch that's in Galatia, they say Antioch of Pisidia or Pisidian Antioch because that was the region within which this Antioch was found. And uh, as he gets to, I, as Paul and Barnabas, as they get to Iconium, Acts chapter 14 verses 1 and 2 tell us this. It came to pass in Iconium that they went both together into the synagogue of the Jews and so spake that a great multitude, both of the Jews and of the Greeks, believed but the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and made their minds evil affected against the brethren. So there was a huge controversy in Iconium over the gospel. Many Jews and Gentiles believed, but then a, there was this, this contingency that did not believe and again stirred up great anger and hatred against the gospel. So, so strong was this controversy that the Jewish leaders in the city were, were getting ready to stone Paul and Barnabas. And Acts chapter 14, verse 6 tells us that when Paul and Barnabas learned of this, they fled out of Iconium and they fled to Lystra and Derbe, which you can see south of Iconium and then southeast of Iconium. So they fled to Lystra and Derbe. Now, Acts chapter 14, verses 11 and 12 tell us um, well, before we get there, in Lystra, uh, the response to the ministry and, and, and of Paul and Barnabas was dramatically different. Paul healed an impotent man in the city, and verses 11 and 12 here tell us that the people decided Paul and Barnabas were Greek gods. And they said, these Greek gods have come down to earth, they, gave Bar they called Barnabas Jupiter, and they called Paul Mercury. That's what verses 11 and 12 tell us. So now the local priest of Jupiter is preparing a sacrifice to sacrifice an animal to Paul and Barnabas because of this great miracle that they did. And all the while, Paul and Barnabas are trying. They're begging the people, no, we are not Greek gods. 
He's not Jupiter. I'm not Mercury. Why won't you listen to me? They say, oh, these gods don't know what they're talking about. Let's just sacrifice to these gods. And so they are ignoring Paul and Barnabas, and they are going to give this sacrifice. Maybe it's kind of a, the gods are testing us. Let's, let's, let's give them a sacrifice, even though they're saying they don't want sacrifice. They're not saying they're gods, but they, they must be gods. And so, so just ignore them. I don't understand a person that ignores their own gods. Um, but that's most of the world, isn't it? They, they, they have their gods and they ignore their gods. As a matter of fact, Paul's going to say that these people that are worshiping the law, they're worshiping the law, but they're ignoring the law, but they're making you worship the law because they're trying to impose themselves on you. That's Galatians 6. We're getting way ahead of ourselves. I love this book. So, so now they think Barnabas is Jupiter and, and the, the priest of Jupiter is about to give a, a, a sacrifice to them. And, and eventually they convince these guys, don't, don't do sacrifices to us. And, and it's, it's almost sad, um, because what Paul and Barnabas, they're, they're pleading, they're saying, no, this is exactly what we're trying to get you out of. And here you are making us false gods, the same false gods that we're trying to preach you away from. And so eventually they don't, um, they don't do the sacrifice and, and this leaves the city conflicted, but the controversy is not over. The scriptures tell us that Jews from both Antioch and Pisidia and Iconium that hate Paul and Barnabas actually chased them all the way to Lystra and Der- Derby and got the city stirred up and Paul was stoned, thrown out of the city and left for dead. And notice what it says in Acts 19, 14, 19, and 20. There came thither certain Jews from Antioch and Iconium who persuaded the people and having stoned Paul, drew him out of the city, supposing he had been dead. Howbeit, as the disciples stood round about him, so all the disciples are now standing around Paul who's been thrown out of the city and been stoned. Paul rose up, came back into the same city he'd just been stoned, and the next day, he and Barnabas left Lystra and went to Derby. So this was the response. This was what happened here. Following the, their time in Derby, the Bible says that they retraced their steps. They went back to Lystra, then to Iconium, then to Antioch, and then ended up around the horn back in Antioch of Syria where their missionary journey was complete. Now, I gave you this brief history of Paul's ministry in the region because as we work through the book of Galatians, we'll find that the primary problem being confronted in this book is that the Christians in this region, having been saved during Paul's ministry by accepting the gospel of Jesus Christ by grace through faith and the finished work of Christ, have been deceived by false teachers into believing that their spiritual success the success of their Christian lives was dependent upon a readherence to Jewish law. And we'll also find that these teachers were specifically teaching this doctrine in an attempt to avoid being persecuted by the people of their region. Now, when you think about the kind of response Paul got in the region, it makes sense, doesn't it? That, that Pisidian Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derby would struggle with people that are trying to get them to submit back to Jewish law or maybe trying to find that middle ground so that they won't be persecuted by the Jews where, yeah, they believe salvation is by grace, but then we'll live by the law and please God by the law so that we're not offending 
these Jews, and, and so the, these Jews who don't believe in Christ will coexist with them because they have the law and we observe the law even though on paper we say we don't need to. And, and, and you can perhaps see how this region might be a prime region for this kind of error. And this is why I think that it is indeed the southern area of Galatia that Paul is writing to here because it just fits the M.O., of the kind of struggles this area would probably have because of the deeply and, and violently Jewish people in the city. So I believe it's consistent with what we know of Galatians and with what we'll find throughout the book of Galatians. Now, before we jump into the book, let me make a few more remarks about its history. We know that it was written by Paul. Chapter 2 makes it clear that it was written after... Uh, I believe it makes it clear. There's debate about this too. But I believe it makes it clear it was written after the Jerusalem Council. And it's likely that Paul was writing this somewhere around 50 AD, which would have been about 20 years after Jesus Christ's death, burial, resurrection and maybe a year or two after what we call the Jerusalem Council, which we'll talk about in just a little bit. Now, as we get back into the epistle itself, we witness the, the beginning of this controversy. In verse 6, um, the book just makes a dramatic dive into this controversy. And Paul doesn't seek to spare any feelings. He's not going to beat around any bushes here. He dogmatically states that the way the church is operating and the things the church leaders have been teaching are another gospel, a false gospel, a perverted gospel. And this is no light charge. It is an open condemnation of the leadership and the direction of the church. He's literally saying you are preaching a false gospel. And I don't know that there could be, even in today's world, I don't know that there could be a, a more, a, a stronger a, a charge against the church than that they preach a false gospel. The gospel is the very center of everything that the church is supposed to both manifest and preach. And if you're preaching a false gospel, then literally you're telling that church that they are doing everything wrong that Jesus Christ has commissioned them to do. They have missed the boat. And that's what Paul says here. I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another. It's not a true gospel. It's not good news. It's not, he says it's another good news, but it's not good news. It's not the gospel at all. These are people that trouble you and are perverting, twisting, confusing the gospel of Christ. That's verses 6 and 7. And Paul's immediate and definitive advice for those in the church is that everyone who is teaching this kind of error, who is preaching this false gospel, uh, that Paul is correcting in the epistle, that if they will not be corrected, then they should be accursed. We saw this in 2 Thessalonians. We saw this in 1 Thessalonians. Paul's charge to separate from people who will not accept sound doctrine. Here it is again. He says, I would that they which preach this would be accursed, removed from fellowship from the body, brought under church discipline. And Paul's point here is that there is only one gospel, one truth. It cannot be redefined. It cannot be reinterpreted. It is not open for debate. And any true follower of Christ will stand with the true gospel. And if they, particularly under correction of one of God's apostles or under the word of God itself, will not accept the correction, then they need to be accursed. They need to be removed 
from fellowship. Paul then spends the rest of chapter 1 and into chapter 2 defending his own testimony as it pertains to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul perhaps heard rumblings that these Judaizers, these false teachers were saying, well, forget about that Paul guy. That Paul guy doesn't know what he's talking about. And Paul feels compelled in these chapters to defend his own apostolic ministry, to defend the, the authority that he has to speak for Christ. The most effective way for a false teacher to draw believers away from the truth is to cast doubt upon the, the medium by which that truth comes. False teachers were attempting to cast doubt on Paul because Paul was the voice of God to the New Testament church. He was an apostle of Jesus Christ. He had the authority to speak on behalf of God. Today, we don't have apostles anymore. We don't have the prophets that speak for God. What do we have? We have this right here. And what you will find throughout your entire life is the most effective way for a false teacher to get inroads into the church is to make the church doubt that this book is true. To make the church doubt that this book can be known or that this book matters. False teachers love to to get in and say, well, that passage of Scripture was for a different culture and for a different time. They love to get into to the Bible and say, well, that passage of Scripture doesn't really say what, what it says. They love to cast doubt on the Word of God. And that's exactly what the false teachers in Galatia were doing. They were saying, Paul is not authoritative. Yeah, he has his own version of what he believes is true, but this version is no different. It's fine as well. You can, you can just do it this way. Believe this and you'll be fine. The Word of God was still being written and Paul had that divine authority. So in order to make inroads into the convictions of believers, they first had to destroy the believer's faith in Christ Faith in Paul's message, which was the message of Christ. In verses 13-24, Paul first reminds them of his personal testimony. That he was a man that had been very prosperous in Judaism. In fact, he had been a Pharisee. Look at verses 13 and 14. For you have heard of my conversion in time past in the Jews' religion, how that Beyond measure, I persecuted the church of God and wasted it and profited in the Jews' religion above many my equals in mine own nation being more exceedingly zealous of the traditions of my fathers. Paul says, if you want proof that I am not doing this for, for self-gain, that I'm do not doing this for personal benefit, let me reference you to how good my life was before I became a Christian, materially speaking. I was trusted by the Sanhedrin council to root out Christians and destroy them. I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. I profited. Uh, I, was, I was the highest uh, of, of the, the, the greatest of the Pharisees. I was that rising star. I, was, I had my name on the Pharisee of the month board every month. I was, I was a, a guy that was profiting in my own religion. He says, if you want proof that this is not me trying to profit. Just look at where I was and where I am now. Materially speaking, I'm nowhere near where I was then. 
Materially speaking, I gave up everything, the, the selfish ambitions of this world, and you know I did, church. Remember that. He reminds them that he is not just a product of man's philosophy. He wasn't influenced by the apostles. He'll, he'll teach, he'll continue to teach in this, that, that when he got saved, he didn't confer with men. He didn't get together and say, okay, you know, apostles, I see where you're going here. This is really tricky. I like this. I think we can make a lot of money here. So let me just get in on this. He says, I didn't confer with men. I didn't compare notes with other people to see if we can get on the same page and create this cult-like religion or, or, or anything like that. He said, I conferred not with flesh and blood. I was taught by Christ himself. And what he's attempting to do here is show that there was no human bias in his convictions. His convictions were by God. As we transition to chapter 2, Paul continues to defend his own ministry. He says, Then fourteen years after, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and took Titus with me also. Here he references what is likely his appearance before the Jerusalem council in Acts 15. We won't go there today. We'll, we'll go there when we slowly exposit this epistle. But Paul's he, he makes a point here to the believers in Galatia that their confusion, this false gospel that would seek to add elements to the Jewish law of the Jewish law to salvation, was debated in Jerusalem already. That Paul stood up before the council and the council said, Paul, we've got reports that you are preaching a false gospel. And Paul said, this is what I'm preaching. I'm preaching the gospel minus any expectations of the law. He stood up for the gospel by faith alone without works. And he goes on to say that James and Peter and John all agreed with Paul that he was an apostle sent explicitly to the Gentile nations and that the Gentile nations are not under, that, that they should not explicitly be taught that they have to submit themselves to Jewish law. Now, the Jewish Christians were still regularly submitting themselves to Jewish law. And that's not necessarily a wrong thing. But what the Jerusalem account, uh, Council established is that it wasn't a requirement for salvation. And the, the um, controversy was over specifically circumcision. Paul was not compelling Gentile believers to get circumcised. And the Jews were saying, look, if they don't get circumcised, they're not saved. And that was the controversy. And what Paul is, is attempting to do again in chapter 2 is remind the church that he has stood for the gospel and that this council agreed with him and that Jesus Christ is the one who taught him. He's trying to remind them that he's not just some spurious guy on the fringe of Christianity preaching his own ideas here. He is preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ as Jesus Christ wants it preached. And this point is proved with even greater emphasis in his next account. He says, but after that, after the Jerusalem council, in chapter 2, verses 11 through 12, he gives an account of Peter, who was in Antioch. He came to Antioch. He was eating with Gentiles until a bunch of Jews arrived. And then Peter separated himself from the Gentiles to eat with the Jews, lest he offend the Jews. And Peter confronted him publicly for that. I mean, Paul confronted Peter publicly. 
he confronted him because even Barnabas, he says, was led away by Peter's bad example. And so he stood up and he confronted Peter and he said, you see, um, you don't see here, chapter, uh, verse 14, when I saw that they walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel, I said unto Peter before them all, if thou, being a Jew, livest after the manner of Gentiles and not as do the Jews, why compellest thou the Gentiles to live as do the Jews? Why are you making the Gentiles feel out of place for being uncircumcised? When you're preaching a gospel that says salvation is not by circumcision, then that all men have been leveled by the gospel, that there's no Jew or Gentile, that there's no male and female, that we're all one in Christ. Paul looked at Peter and said, I see inconsistency, Peter, and he rebuked Peter, going so far as to rebuke him before the assembly. So Paul is saying here, look, if you need any proof that I am going to fight for the gospel of Jesus Christ, that this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, look to what I have given up for this gospel. Look to how I defended the gospel at the Jerusalem Council. And they agreed with me, by the way, he says. And look to how I rebuked Peter. I was willing to even confront one of the, the pillars of the church. I was willing to confront him in order to maintain a pure gospel the gospel of Jesus Christ, even when it wasn't convenient, even when it wasn't easy. And beginning in chapter 3, Paul shifts from highlighting this controversy and validating his authority to truly rebuking the church for their lack of discernment in leaving the true gospel to follow this legalistic one. He says, O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you? What a word, huh? You've been bewitched. You've been confused, you've been deceived, the wool has been pulled over your eyes that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ has been evidently set forth. You have seen, you have heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. I delivered it to you personally. And he does something here that I love, Paul does, in that he spends far more time focusing upon reiterating the truth than he does upon rehashing the error. You know, we're never going to get anywhere as Christians if we just keep rehashing what's wrong. It's far better for us to simply say, that is wrong, now let me tell you what is right. If you have to spend your time anywhere, the idea of apologetics is learning how to defend your faith. And it's important to understand what Mormons believe and what Jehovah's Witness believe and what atheists believe and uh, the arguments for evolution. And that's all well and good. But if you're going to, the first thing you need to do, if you're going to spend your time anywhere first, spend the time understanding the truth. And if you know the truth, then the error is just going to kind of fall away. When somebody presents something to you that, that you don't even, you've never even heard of before, you can say, well, okay, I've never heard of that, but let me tell you what the Bible says. And you'll see that what you just said doesn't make sense with what the Bible says. So it's not as important to learn error as it is to learn truth. Error can help you strategize how to confront, but know the truth. And that's what Paul does here. He spends time on the truth. And he does it in a very clever way. Right? He's appealing to people who, are, who have fallen back under the influence of the Mosaic Law. And so where does he go to prove that the law isn't necessary for salvation? 
he goes to one of the heroes of the Mosaic law. He goes to Abraham. I mean, now Abraham was pre-law, but he was a, I mean, he's a hero of, his, uh, of, the, of Israeli history, of Jewish history. He says, let's go back to Abraham here. Let's go back to the man who, who is the father of Israel. Grandfather, technically, but you know what I mean. The father of the nation, the grandfather of the man. And let's see what, what his example bears forth. So Paul appeals to Abraham being saved by believing God, by placing his faith in the revealed Word of God. Abraham was saved by grace through faith plus nothing. And then he says that everyone who follows in Abraham's example of believing God achieves the same blessing in the same way, by grace through faith plus nothing. Paul reiterates that Christ is the end goal. The end blessing is Christ. And, and uh, as we get there, we'll see that, that Christ is the seed that was promised to Abraham, that Abraham was believing in. Christ was the one that it all surrounds the atoning work of Jesus Christ. Abraham was believing that God would send him. We're believing that God did send him, but it doesn't matter because it all focuses on Christ. We're all saved the same way, all the way back to the example of Abraham. But this leads to a natural question. Well, if Abraham was saved by grace through faith, and the church is saved by grace through faith, and Israel is saved by grace through faith, then what, what serves the law? If, if Abraham was saved by grace through faith before the law even was there, then why did God introduce the law? That's a valid question. And Paul gives three reasons in verses 19 through 20 of chapter 3. He speaks of the law's capacity to indicate the rebellious nature of man. That is what he says at the beginning of verse 19. It was added because of transgressions till the promised seed should come. And then in verses 20 and 21, he gives the second reason that the law is a great equalizer. He says, for if there had been a law given which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. If anybody could have worked their way to Christ or to salvation, then the standard for all men would have had to have been work your way to salvation. But because the Scripture hath concluded all men under sin, that means no one can work their way. That means we are all in a level playing field. That means Jesus Christ, that, um, that the promise of faith by Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. Because of the great equalizer of us all being condemned under sin, we all have the opportunity to be redeemed under grace. What a fantastic truth. I can't wait to preach that message. We're getting there. So, our first reason for the law is to show people they're sinful. Our second reason for the law is a great equalizer. To, to equalize everyone that nobody can please God in and of themselves. That nobody can, can be perfect in and of themselves. The third reason, he says, is our schoolmaster. So, it tells us that we're sick. It tells us that we're all sick. And then it tells us that it, it points us to the solution because Jesus Christ fulfilled 
the law. It makes us see our sin. It makes us see our need. And it leads us to Christ. If I can't get there, then who can get there? Well, the only one that got there, if the only one who found favor with God is one who, who completely fulfilled the law. And the one who completely fulfilled the law is Christ. So if the law tells me I'm a sinner and that we are all sinners and that there must be one without sin in order to fulfill the law, in order to make me right with God, and Jesus Christ is the one that fulfilled the law, then He is the one who can reconcile me back to God. The law is our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. So as Paul continues in chapter 3, verses 25 and into chapter 4, he shows that Christ has fulfilled the law. And we, when we accept Christ, are graduated beyond the law and placed into a position of liberty by grace. That Christ fulfilled the law not just for Himself, but for you and for me. Now beginning in chapter 4, verse 8. Plugging right along here. Paul brings things back to the churches themselves. Reminding them that it was the gospel that called them out of pagan rituals out of liturgies, out of the material and physical requirements to earn merit with God. And here they are, having been called out of all that trash by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what are they doing? They're doing the exact same thing, but putting a biblical face on pagan idolatry and denial of the true gospel. He says in verses 8 and 9 of chapter 4, Howbeit then, when ye knew not God, ye did service unto them which by nature are no gods. Ye worshipped things that weren't gods as if they were gods. You worshipped your materialism. You worshipped your Greek pantheon. You worshipped yourself. You worshipped the, the, the Caesar, whoever, whatever you worshipped. You worshipped things that weren't gods. He said, but now after you have known the true God, or rather you're known of God, how turn ye again to the weak and beggarly elements, whereunto he desire again to be in bondage? We've talked about this before, right? That we as Christians are set free from our sin. And then sometimes what we do as Christians is we walk right back into that field of slavery and we take those shackles of sin or shackles of pagan religion or shackles of bondage to a law and we put those shackles back on ourselves and we live back under the slavery of everything that Christ has saved us from? That's what Paul says they're doing here. It can be done with sin, but you know it can also be done with religion. That you sought to earn favor with God before you were saved by pleasing Him, by doing things for Him. That you felt as though somehow if you just did enough that God would accept you. And then you recognize that salvation is by grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ and you were liberated from that, oh, I don't have to work to get myself to heaven and now I'm a Christian and how do I live my Christian life? As if I have to work to earn favor with God. Paul says all you're doing is taking the same shackles you just lost and slapping them back on your wrists. You're placing yourself back under bondage to a law that you have been freed from. Oh, I love this book. So, he rebukes the church for allowing false teachers to influence them. He rebukes the false teachers for desiring to live back under the bondage of guilt and expectation that they've been freed from. And then he closes out this rebuke 
in chapter 4, verse 31. So then, brethren, we're not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. He was using an analogy of, of Hagar and, and Sarah and the, the bondwoman being Hagar and Sarah being the free. Of course, we'll get there when we get there. But he says, you're not under bondage. You are children of freedom in Christ. And then he, this verse... I love this verse. Chapter 5, verse 1. So stand fast in your liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Don't be brought back under bondage to the things that Christ has freed you from. He's not warning that you'll lose your salvation or anything that sort, that sort but you are at risk of living under a false gospel and thus reflecting a false gospel to the world. As we've come to expect from Pauline epistles, Paul spends the, the last bit of his epistle being very practical. He begins doctrinally and then he always ends practically, doesn't he? He says, this is the doctrine, and then he says, because of the doctrine, therefore do this. And that's why I preach the way I do. I try to do that as well. I first I teach, right? And then I say, okay, now how can we apply? Let's learn the doctrine and get the foundation and then let's take that and we'll draw it out a little bit and, and place it into our lives in the proper place. And that's what Paul always does and that's what he begins in chapter 5, verse 1. This is, this is where things, they remain doctrinal, of course, but this is where they get practical, he begins with an exhortation to stand fast in the liberty of grace, to not be entangled with the yoke of a false gospel that would compel them to earn favor with God through works. And this call to stand in grace is essential because the law is powerless before God. The law engenders debt. The law brings guilt. And Jesus has purchased us out of guilt. He has purchased us freedom from guilt. He has paid our debt. So any feelings of justification by the law invalidate the entire purpose of God's grace. When we seek to, to be justified in the eyes of God through our good works, even as believers, we are invalidating the grace. We are, we are spurning the grace that was purchased for us on the cross of Calvary. We'll get there. We'll talk about that more in depth as we get there. There's a balance here, right? Because we are called to live right before God. Right? Yes, we're, we're called to obey the Word of God. But, for all that we're called to obey the Word of God, our obedience to the Word of God is not an obedience of debt. It's an obedience of grace. And that's the difference. So Paul says in verse 12, I would that they were even cut off which trouble you. You can feel the frustration in his words as he just wants these people out of there that were teaching this false gospel, that their voice would be muted in the assembly. But notice this, and this is where that this, the idea of liberty meshes with our responsibility. He says in chapter 5, verses 13 and 14, For brethren, ye have been called unto liberty. Only look at this. Use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh. Don't allow your liberty to be an excuse for you to sin. But by love, serve one another. Your liberty should give you the freedom to serve others the way they need to be served. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. 
Grace must not be used as an excuse to sin, but rather enable us to freely operate within the joyful, blessedness of obedience to the example of Jesus Christ. Grace should compel obedience even if obedience doesn't purchase favor with God. Now, we might liken this to the relationship between a father and his child. I love my daughters. And I love my daughters regardless of their actions. Obedience or not, I love my daughters. Wise decisions or not, I love my daughters. And when a child sees unwavering love from a faithful father, this should make them want to first love him, and then because they love him, they want to please him. Now imagine if my daughters felt as though I didn't love them that day unless they washed the dishes, made sure the floor was swept, And if I came downstairs and I didn't see everything done, then then my daughters lost my love until they proved to me their love and they earned back favor with me. What a silly kind of existence that would be. What, What a terrible father I would be. But that's what happens when we feel like we have to earn God's favor with our works. Rather... My daughters, they live and maybe one of them accidentally or perhaps intentionally because they were throwing a fit, breaks a bowl or breaks a glass. Is daddy happy with them? No. Is daddy going to chasten them for their bad behavior? If it was an accident, probably not. Unless, I mean, we're talking recurring carelessness. But, you know, if if it was intentional, they threw a fit, they knocked a glass, whatever, they'll be chastened for their poor behavior. But at any point in the process, did they ever have to earn love back from me? No. Did, they, did my love to them ever waver? No. In fact, I chastened them because I loved them. And because they see that my love for them is constant, and that even on their bad days, I love them still, and that whether good day or bad, they're not, they don't need to earn my love that will make them love me. And then as they love me, love will compel obedience, won't it? You love your parents. You hate to see them sad, disappointed, grieved, upset at you. And so you do what's right so that they can be happy because you want them to be happy because you love them. And you love them because they love you. They care for you. That's Galatians. That's what Paul is teaching. Don't try to shackle yourself to this roller coaster existence of God loves me, God hates me, God loves me, God hates me, God loves me, God hates me. Oh, did wrong again, I'm in the basement. Oh, did right again, I'm at the head table. Oh, wrong, oh, right. And you're living like this. And believe me, the reason why this is my favorite book is because I spent years of my Christian life there. Years of my Christian life there. And then one day, like a lightning bolt, this book hit me. And I realized that I don't have to live under the guilt of my sin. Silly thing for a Christian to realize, but I'd been saved for 15 years before it hit me.
Wow. More years than most of you have been alive as a Christian before it hit me that I didn't have to live under the guilt and condemnation of the sin that Christ had freed me from. Paul spends the majority of the remainder of this book teaching these ways that we can love God. Not because we need to earn His love back, but because of His love for us. Right? First John, we love Him because He first loved us. In chapter 5, verses 13 and 14, love thy neighbor. In chapter 5, verses 16 through 26, walk in the Spirit. And that's the great works of the flesh, um, fruit of the Spirit passage. Chapter 6, verse 1, restore the repentant. Chapter 6, verse 2, bear one another's burdens. Chapter 6, verses 3 through 5, prove your own work. Chapter 6, verses 6 through 8, support your minister. Chapter 6, verses 9 through 10, do good to all men, and especially to those that are the household of faith, he says. None of these are conditions of your salvation. None of these are the basis of your relationship with God. None of these, if you fail to do them, put you in the basement. You might face chastening for disobedience, but that's love in its purest form. But these are expected to be the natural outworking of your liberty in Christ and and your love for Christ, using your liberty to serve God and to serve one another. Now, as Paul closes the epistle, he makes one more very important remark. Remember near the beginning of the sermon, I mentioned that I believe Paul is writing to the churches in Antioch and Pisidia, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe because of how Paul was treated there and the particular struggles he faced. And I mentioned that I feel as though uh, it it would make sense for these churches to try to change the gospel because there was probably a lot of persecution there and it would make sense for them to try to get get around some of that persecution. Well, this is where that idea comes from. Look at verses 12 and 13 of chapter 6. As many as desire to make a fair show in the flesh, to live under this legalistic Jewish law, they constrain you to be circumcised, he says, only lest they should suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. In order to... This is what they said. These Jews were saying... or These, these, these Judaizers, these, these teachers were saying, hey, look, the Jews don't think you can be saved, or can be right with God without circumcision, so just get circumcised. Just capitulate to their law so that they don't persecute you. Now, that didn't work for Paul. He was circumcised. He still got stoned, left for dead. Barnabas was circumcised. He still got, uh, he was right, right there with Paul. He doesn't say he got stoned, but he was, he was persecuted with Paul. These guys didn't get away with it because of that. But, but do you see how, how silly that can get? Where you say, okay, let's just compromise the gospel in order to avoid persecution because this is what people don't like to hear. So let's get rid of it. That's what happens today with sin, right? Get the sin out of your preaching because people don't want to hear about sin. So just take it out and talk about grace and grace will bring people to Christ. Well, maybe it does with some, but only those that recognize they're a sinner first. And the whole reason why they say, well, let's just take the sin out of preaching is so that people don't persecute us or so that people don't walk away from us or so that people don't say, well, they're just a bunch of angry people. But in doing so, you've compromised the the integrity of the gospel. Paul says these people are teaching you, constraining you to circumcision so that they won't be persecuted, 
so that you won't be persecuted, so that you don't have to bear the cross of Christ, the cross which Jesus Christ commands us to bear. Second, though, look what else he says. He says, For neither they themselves who are circumcised keep the law, but desire to have you circumcised that they may glory in your flesh. Those people don't keep the law. They pick and choose what parts of the law. They, have you ever noticed that with legalistic people? They pick and choose what's, what, what legalism to, to hang on to and what legalism not to. They, they quote the verse that says that women should not wear that which pertaineth unto a man from the Old Testament, but they eat shellfish. But they mix polyester and cotton. So which parts of the law are we supposed to live under and which parts aren't we supposed to live under? Clarify that for me. And, and, and it doesn't work. And that, that is exactly what these people were doing. He says these folks, yeah, sure, maybe they got circumcised, but they, they don't follow the law. They don't follow it to a T. But they're compelling you to get circumcised and they're lording it over you. They are looking for people to follow them. They want you to follow them, not God. They want you to follow them, not the gospel. They want you to have their gospel because that gives them a feeling of power. That validates them. They don't keep the law any better than you keep the law. And as we said, this is still true today. False teachers generally fall into one of two categories. Either they're men who change the truth of the scriptures to justify their own sin their own weaknesses or their own spiritual shortcomings. Like, let's change the gospel so we don't get persecuted. Let's say that we don't have to do this because I don't like to do this or um, it's a spiritual weakness in my own life, so let's say that's not a sin. That's one false teaching realm. Or the false teaching realm that says they change the truth of Scriptures to create a group to follow them. The man becomes the ministry. The man becomes the, the head honcho rather than to follow the Scriptures themselves. And that's the book of Galatians. We'll spend the next several months considering it all together. As we close, let's take some of these truths and we'll, we'll bring them together. Truth, uh, we've learned more than this, but, but these five points is what we'll kind of take with us this evening from the book. Number one, the Gospel is not up for debate. The Gospel is not open to interpretation. The Gospel is the Gospel. Jesus Christ defines what the gospel is because he purchased it. And nobody, nobody has the right to redefine it. To look at it from a different angle. It is what it is. Number two, doubt in God's word always makes believers susceptible to error. If you doubt this portion of God's word, then who's to say any of it's right? If God's word has errors, then... then Who's, why should we believe it? And as doubt has crept into the church, we've seen the fallout, haven't we? We've seen the fallout of error in our churches. Error because people don't believe the Bible's true. They don't believe that Genesis 1-11 through 11 is true. There was no Adam and Eve. There was no global flood. There was no six-day creation. And you know what? That might be fine for one generation. But the next generation grows up saying, well, if Genesis 1-11 through 11 isn't true, then who says John 3.16 is true? Why should John 3.16 be true? A generation that said, ah, the Old Testament doesn't matter, that, that's a mean God, just stick to the New Testament. Well, if the Old Testament doesn't matter, then why should the New Testament matter? If we can redefine the Word of God in the area of sodomy, 
If we can redefine the Word of God in the area of divorce, if we can redefine the Word of God in the area of abortion, then why can't we redefine the Gospel? Why can't we redefine anything? If we can redefine one thing, let's just do it to everything. And there, the church is gone. Doubt in God's Word makes us susceptible to error. Number three, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, plus nothing. We know this. Salvation has nothing to do with you, with your merit, with your abilities, with your efforts. It has everything to do with what Jesus Christ purchased on the cross of Calvary. We are sinners and there is nothing we can do to get ourselves to heaven. And Jesus Christ paid the debt and offers us the free gift of salvation which He purchased on the cross if we will but accept it. Point number four. Christian liberty is worth fighting for. Christian liberty is worth fighting for. In the same way that we can redefine the, go- the gospel of Jesus Christ to bring us toward no, no rules, we can redefine the gospel of Jesus Christ to shackle us under the old rules. And Christian liberty is worth the fight. That may sound strange coming from a conservative church like ours where most people would say that we're legalistic. But Christian liberty is worth fighting for. And where we come in is, is, is this fifth point. Christian liberty still brings with it responsibility, doesn't it? That Christian liberty does not at all negate what we ought to do according to God's Word. That we still ought to obey. Not to incur favor with God, but because we already have favor with God. Because the price has already been paid.